When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Before there was IMDB.com, there was Zach and Dustin. You know those guys who think they know everything about a movie without having to go on the internet to look it up? That's us, but maybe only for the years 1981 through mid-1989. No, I'd say late 1978 through early 1992. (laughs) Either way, we know movies. And even more specifically, we know soundtracks from those movies. Yeah, this is $2 Late Fee with Zach and Dustin. This is the podcast where we pick a movie and soundtrack from our youth that we loved and see if it still holds up today. All in the spirit of positivity and togetherness. Thanks for listening. On to the show. True Lies. Terminator. Terminator 2. Fright Night 1 and 2. Fraternity Vacation. Let's Get Harry, as you can hear below us. The Serpent and the Rainbow. What do all of these wonderful films have in common? Today's guest, composer extraordinaire Brad Fidel. We uh we got we got Brad, huh? Wow, we sure did. And I think he really appreciated the fact that it wasn't just the Terminator franchise and Fright Night and True Lies that you brought up, but all those other great titles you brought up that we were fans of. Gladiator, the original, ninety two. Right, to be clear, no Russell Crowe in that one. <laughs> no Russell Crowe. No, because people hear that and they get confused. They're like, Oh, wow, <laughs> Gladiator. No, the obscure fighting movie that we've mentioned on the show a couple times. A couple times, thanks to Brad. Yeah, we talk about surfing. Joseph Campbell, his musical full circle that he created that is very near and dear to his heart, which you can check out in the show notes. Uh, links to that will be in the show notes to this episode, FYI. But Brad was a dynamic guest to have on the show. Clearly proud of his work and the journey that got him to where he is today. It's all discussed in our episode. Yeah, really good guest. We had a lot of fun. Let's do it. Enjoy Brad Fidel. Brad Fidel, thank you so much for being on $2 Late Fee. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's really an honor. It's really an honor. But your body of work, obviously Terminator and Terminator 2 are, are, are championed quite often. But 
Dustin and I are equally fans of your other films as well, um, specifically Fright Night, because I'm a huge Fright Night fan, like beyond uh-huh. huge. Uh, and like Gladiator and and Blue Steel and just like, I, you know, we were I was doing a deep dive into your career leading up to this interview. And I was like, wait, Brad did this movie. Brad did that. I love Let's Get Harry. Wait, I love Serpent in the Rain. But wait, what? This is blowing my mind. <laughs> oh, that's cool. I, I really enjoy that because it is a, it was a whole lifetime you know, within those 20 some odd years, it was, it was one of my lifetimes, you know, if we kind of live our life in different acts, you know, it was kind of act two for me, because my first act was a, from a teenage to a mid early 20s trying to become a rock and roll star. But um, I really appreciate it when people understand the range of the work, because there actually aren't that many of you that, that, that know the full catalog. And this goes back to, to what I was saying about following your bliss and why I ended up not doing that thing anymore, being a hired composer for to support film and television, was that there was a, uh, some there were some big changes. And one of the changes was I was getting, I thought, more masterful in my work, always learning, always feeling like I didn't know enough, always having a slight feeling like, why are people still hiring me? I'm faking it. <laughs> you know, that, oh, yeah. that's Imposter apparently a typical, always, yeah. that's a yeah. typical artist thing. I, you know, I, I can't claim that, but it was always kind of like, I'm at Sony with 110 musicians and, you know, doing this major film and there's part of me that's going like, whoa, dude, how'd you pull this off? <laughs> you know, but anyway, the bottom line is that a number of the films that you mentioned did not do very well financially. Box office, right? Yeah. They've, yeah. they've, they've attained some, some of them a certain kind of, you know, classic, cult classic stature, which is wonderful. But in the time when when Hollywood is all, what did you do lately? What have you done lately? How much money, you know, how much of a hit was it that I got connected because I was kind of like a stray dog uh, lover. You know, it's like I, I wasn't I turned down some projects, but often I would get very connected in a meeting with the filmmakers and say, yeah, I'd love to help these guys out. Then I'd screen the film and go, hmm, eh, okay. Um, and then, <laughs> then it was, then it was love the one you're with. And I would just dive in like every score I did 90% of them was, was, you know, my whole heart, the best I could do, regardless That's of the awesome. limitations of the, That's of the awesome. film. It was just, and it wasn't from some kind of wonderful character thing. It was the only way I knew how to work. I couldn't write decent music unless my heart was in it. You know, so I have to adjust after screening a film, I'd have to adjust my heart in a sense and say, what is there to love? Where can I help this film? But as far as the industry is concerned, if you have too many films, especially as you get up a little bit higher into the budget area, if you have a film like Striking Distance with Bruce Willis, that was a bit of a train wreck uh, as far as the studio and the director and disagreements and whatever. Um, you know, if you have films like that, Johnny Mnemonic that, that didn't, uh, perform the way they expected, regardless of the music, 
regardless of the music, that is a black mark on your resume. Hmm. And you are less likely to be asked to do their latest, greatest investment because you're attached to something that was a loss for the industry. It's really frustrating because I I, I don't mean to interrupt, but I I, I just, I need to, because I, I, it's, it's really frustrating. Um, you know, both Dustin and I, obviously, like I said earlier, we're in the business and, uh, but you know, but, but as a fan, we, we have a love of a lot of movies that many might consider not that great. Dustin coined the phrase a masterpiece, which I think is wonderful. Um, (laughs) and, uh, and, and, but it's really frustrating when you hear stories like that, because you go, wait a minute, it's so subjective. And, and there's so many cogs in the wheel. And, you know, even like you said, Striking Distance had a lot of flaws and that might be a masterpiece for one. Um, but uh, but just this idea that, you know, your music elevated so many movies that if you took that score out, it would not be the same. On our show specifically, we talk about movies and the music. And, and, and when we pick movies out for our show, we pick out a movie that not not only do we enjoy it, but, but it's also the music as well, because the two go together. If, if it's if it doesn't have the right score, if it doesn't have the right soundtrack, it's really dramatically going to change the overall feeling of the film. Your music elevated that. specifically from fright night you know um i I think it's like come to me or right yeah that's the underlying theme yeah yeah the underlying kind of theme throughout the like in that movie i talked to tom holland um in another interview and Uh, (laughs) and he was talking about how he loved the score equally as much as he loved the soundtrack and that guitar like i used to make that guitar sound as a kid (laughs) imitating it because I loved it so much. <laughs> okay, so listen, you need to look up on my Fright Night, on my, I'm sorry, on my Facebook. I think I have this, I have a, a social media guru during this period, Alexandra, who's been helping me with all this. I'm not She's great. Yeah. really understanding much about Instagram, but it's on Instagram. And, and, and you just said something and you need to watch the little thing I did from, I did come to me, a live performance. Uh, on, you know, and we posted it, but it's not guitar; it's electric violin. And yes. you will you will actually see my oh. dear friend Ross Levinson. We did; he's in Santa Monica, but we did you know we did one of those things. I don't know how they do this with seventy five people. I was having like trouble getting it technically together with two, but we did this <laughs> this little video where I'm playing and then it's time for the solo and, and he just, he appears, you know, playing his electric violin in his studio in Santa Monica. So check that out. It, 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 it's a shame. 
And Johnny Mnemonics specifically back in the day used to say, people would say, whoa, the Matrix is mind blowing. And I'm going, yeah, well, this movie came out before the Matrix. Um, and, and it's kind of like a, if you if you like the Matrix, you're going to love Johnny Mnemonic. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. And I want to just add one piece to this, because sitting where I am at my age, having been through a lot you know, uh, in the music business first, and then and then the film and TV business, and a little bit in in live theater business and all that. Um, one thing I wanted to add to what I was saying about about a career and the impact. First of all, I'm really grateful that I had the amount of time and the amount of different palettes to play on and express my musical thoughts. Uh, over the years, just a lot of stuff. And a lot of it was really good. And some of it challenging and some of it masterpieces or what I love that term. But anyway, what I want to do here and now, because I do get uh, composers that ask me for advice or whatever, I have to take responsibility, you know, in my character as a human being for various reasons I won't go into now. I actually did a one man show a bit other biographical one-man show called Borrowed Time and, and performed that out live a bit. Um, but the bottom line is, for my own reasons, I had uh, what I would call fear. I had fear about money. You know, I had fear about having yeah. enough money, about my parents uh, followed their passion and created something very wonderful, a school of the arts. And I watched them go bankrupt in spite of their brilliance and their incredible contribution to so many kids. Uh, and so I was operating from there. So I didn't really, and I didn't, my agents didn't really help me with this. Um, I didn't really um, nurture my career as far as looking at, as being kind of, you watch certain actors and certain composers. I think of Tom, Tommy Newman as one of them, that he he came from a family that knew the Hollywood thing. And I think either in his own spirit or with their help, he got, he was really wise about picking and choosing what he attached himself to. Mm. And I was just like, I'll never know when I'm going to work again. I got to take this project. I got to pay the mortgage, you know, that sure. kind of thing. Yeah. So I need to take responsibility for my part in potentially, um, you know, watering down, uh, you know, what could have been a little bit, longer and higher career as far as the level of filmmakers I was working with uh, after doing Terminator and True Lies in that period after that. Um, but the bottom line is it was all perfect and it's wonderful. You know, I'm grateful for what I got to do and how many composers get to create something that does become part of the culture. So that was really, there's so many talented uh, men and women out there composing music that just don't ever have to don't ever have the luck to to just be attached to something that sparks the imagination of the culture uh, over many years like that. So anyway, I just wanted to say that. No, Absolutely. no, I think I think I think that's important to say. Um, but but you had said earlier that you had no intention necessarily of being a music composer. You want to be a rock star, right? When you were, when you were a kid. <laughs> I was, a, a, you know, I, I had to like kind of get this into a simple version because in my show, I, I, I my one man show bar time, I, I wrote the dialogue, you know, it was a scripted piece based on reality, but 
I couldn't ad lib it every night. I really wanted it to be more precise. So yeah, the you know I think the line in that is you know I I dreamed you know like at fourteen, fifteen, sixteen that I would write songs and change the world, write them and sing them and change the world with my passion, my reflections of what I saw out in the world, um, you know, in that way. So it was like kind of I wanted to be an activist, singer, songwriter, rock star. <laughs> I mean, that there's it, w- there's nothing wrong with that. That's for damn sure. Is there anybody anybody that influenced you back in the day like that? Oh, my gosh. Uh, well, Bob Dylan, you know, yeah. in a big way. Um, you know, it was an interesting time because I started writing songs in the mid '60s as as a you know mid-teens and and reacting to the Beatles, uh, and the Stones, and you know a little later uh, the band, um, mm. so many people, and and the activist part really happened, and you know, I came of age in the '60s, so we're talking high school at '68 graduating in 69 that period you know That's going to fire. getting on a bus and going to washington and getting you know when i see people get pepper pepper gassed and tear tear gassed and you know all that stuff you know i experienced that i've been there and and wow. it was uh it was a very passionate time so that's when i started to write songs that you know really kind of talked about what I was seeing and what my hopes and fears were for humans in the world and stuff like that. Not necessarily stuff that would interest the record companies that much. Of course, I yeah. wrote love songs and all that as well. But I was influenced by a lot of, I was influenced by James Taylor, something about the clear simplicity of his guitar playing, you know, the elegance of his guitar playing and his voice. Um, so yeah, like that. Well, you know, it's funny that you say that because um, James Taylor is is probably like he's played a lot in our home. And uh, and when I was a kid, my mom had her no nuke stickers on her purse and, uh, you know, you and, 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 and right. And, and James Taylor was as, as quiet as he was. He was a big voice for activism as well. Um, and and here you are like you said you wanted to be this rock star activist well in a weird roundabout way your your dystopian music is kind of it's it's what is um influenced a lot of people currently and you know we are seeing this the the 60s and the 70s brought out this new uh revolutionary style of music do you think that that might come out because of what we're going through right now yeah, I, I, it's really interesting. You know, I, I, obviously everybody right now, it's like you get up every morning and can you find some positive purpose and attitude given all that's going on? Yeah. You know, um, I, I think, I think that, that, you know, throughout history, there are people, um, and I'm, I'm blanking out right now, but, uh, one of the Roman famous Ro- Roman writers, uh, of, of uh, historical stuff and and opinion from way back, you know, uh, wrote about um, the fall of democracy and what causes it way back then, you know. So I think in some ways things have never changed. There's a cyclical 
thing to human nature and and sometimes love and positivism and empathy reign and we go through periods like you know passing the civil rights laws and the great society of of helping people and creating safety nets and real, realizing that having breakfast and a good education made huge difference on yeah. you know kids you know coming yeah. from the bronx or harlem or or wherever uh there was less privilege um you know i think this is something that we go through and we're in this really it seems to get a little scarier every time because of our technology uh advancing and this is where the dystopia and where the terminators come in and, and are relevant when our technology progresses past our evolutionary ability to connect that our our capabilities our technological capabilities whether it has to do with the internet and social media or you know nuclear fission and bombs and all that yeah. stuff when that gets disconnected from our humanity and from our caring and our empathy is when it gets really scary and given how uh things have gone in the last you know in my lifetime there's been this huge progress progression in humans capability with technology and the progression of our caring hearts and our uh openness and and our ability to tolerate people with different opinions without getting really really mad and just literally having conversations and politically negotiations between conservatism and liberalism all that that's what scares me is when i see our ability to do that going one way and our yeah. ability to completely destroy our planet it, it's scary and i i really think that jim cameron hit it on the head in in the terminator films because he was going right to that and dealing you know it was mostly dealing with the artificial intelligence side of that but that's a really good metaphor i mean artificial intelligence right oh totally <laughs> not yeah. human or humane intelligence absolutely hey brett how did you get in connected with um james cameron initially well there uh i i was one of the early uh clients of an agency a new a, a new agency for music in in hollywood i had been operating without an agent for a number of years and um these guys showed up and and had a good pitch and i liked them and i joined that agency as one of the early clients and early on there was a young woman at the time named Beth Donahue who was kind of the third agent she was coming up learning the ropes and whatever and way more had a different energy um less cynicism and she's the one that somehow found out about Jim Cameron and the original terminator and thought and and thought about me and thought wow this could be really cool these guys could work together um you know again you know the story it was a low budget action picture so it was accessible to a composer who didn't have huge feature credits i had done some really good quality television but my feature credits were were not you know a list kind of credits 
So she sent him a tape of mine. And apparently, and we're talking cassette tapes, if anybody remembers what those were. <laughs> and apparently, oh, yeah. uh, Jim told me later he had been driving around in his car listening to this reel of my past music, you know, and I'm not even sure. I don't remember what was on that reel. And to the point where he got really interested and he, he and uh, Gail Ann Hurd, his producer, came to my studio to show me the film and, and to talk, you know. And um, interesting thing, you know, as an artist, as a composer, um, the kind of uh, kismet of this was that I had been a little frustrated at that time, my career in the larger projects wasn't really taking off that much. And most of the stuff I was working on wasn't quite uh, touching this more experimental part of who I was. So I started to write this little concerto for piano and synths. Um, and uh, as we were meeting and talking, I felt like I had this Thing that he was interested, but I wasn't closing the deal. He wasn't sold entirely. And the piece I'd been working on for piano and synths was actually um, quite dark. It was, it was I, I think I called it Journey Through the Underground or something like that, Underworld. Um, and I just had this feeling, I said, can you wait a minute? And I had to pull out the 24 track because it wasn't mixed. And I just quickly threw it up and played it for him. And that's when the light bulb lit. I could just see it over his head saying, yes, this is the guy. So it was my personal expression, and I, 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 this is what I always say to people, no matter what you're doing and who you're working for, if there's something you're not getting to do artistically, just do it yourself and have it, on, have it, you know, express yourself, and you just never know. And I had this piece. I didn't know why I was doing it. I was actually pretty busy at the time, but I spent the time to do it. And in the end, it's what got me the job, I'm convinced. Well, yeah, that, that piece specifically, I think, has been a huge influence on um, a lot of current bands uh, in the in the synthwave community. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, the Midnight. Oh, by the or... way, I just want to be clear. That piece had nothing to do with Terminator. That piece has oh. never been heard by the public. That oh, do, do you have that piece? Do you, or will I, you, you know, ever I have. It? I don't think I do. I, I thought about that. I can do a little bit more research but given analog and tape and my not being a great librarian for my own stuff i probably don't but it was just a, a, a it was just a piece it, you know it had some things in in common in that it featured an acoustic piano which the terminator theme originally did as well which mostly is heard in the love scene version of it
See, when you were talking about influence, you're talking about the Terminator theme. I just wanted to clarify that. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. But but also, you know, when I think about just your music in general, and the Terminator really was obviously groundbreaking. Um, there's a there's this band called The Midnight. They have a song called Nocturnal. I don't know if you've ever heard it, but no. it is heavily influenced by uh, by the Terminator. Um, but you were saying that it was on cassette tape, and I and I think you know cassette tapes are making a resurgence again. So uh, oh, for whatever funny. whatever reason, so why not? You know, uh, release a Terminator on cassette, and I think people can relive uh, Jim Cameron's experience. So. <laughs> So, Brad, it was that original tape that James Cameron was like, I'm going to hire you. But then how did the how did sort of the relationship evolve? I mean, one of the biggest questions I have in all of this, obviously, is like when you're doing a studio movie, uh, a huge movie like Terminator has a bigger budget. You know, does the creative process change for you in any way versus the smaller movies? I know you said, you know, you always love the music, but. Well, when you talk about a big studio movie, I wouldn't include Terminator in that. That was really an independent, uh, uh, somewhat on the periphery project. Um, Terminator 2, on the other hand, now that was the most expensive movie ever made at the time it was made. So, yes, there is a difference. And this is something I've been thinking about. so interesting because this whole process of wanting to try to take some of those people that have interest in me as an artist from that past work and move just even a small portion of them into being open to hearing what I'm doing now. So it's not just me sitting in my cave creating things because I, I, the things that I've created since I left Hollywood, um, the exposure of them has been very, very limited because that is not my strength. You know, now I really, in hindsight, appreciate anybody whoever gets any project completely made and up on the screen, uh, be it uh, the big screen or television. But yes, there is a big difference. And, and it's part of what happened because the more money that's invested, the more pressure, the more committee involved. Um, now, Jim is, a, is an exception because he always was such a powerful auteur and held the reins so much. Never had anybody second guess what he and I did together. There was never any comment by anybody else that came to me uh, in that process. And that was very unusual. And I really appreciated that. And I think it's one of the reasons it's some of my best work because as I got into larger and higher budget films, um, there were often these pressures, and in some cases, like striking distance, the the, the director hit a, a roadblock. I don't know exactly the details, but he was actually off the project by the time I was finished doing the bulk of my score. So then I'm working directly for this kind of studio, a head of music, uh, other people, everybody second guessing and wondering mm -hmm. about the market viability of the film and yeah. and focus grouping, including the score. Um, yes. So yeah, the high the, in the early days, it was somebody just seat of the pants getting something made, and usually it was a director and or 
a producer, maybe two producers. So maybe there were three people involved in the discussion. One is the best, but three is okay. But later on, just uh, to give you an example, one of the last uh, scores I wrote, which the public has never heard, was for uh, a big TV project um, called Mists of Avalon. And um, I was working with the director. We had done two other projects very successfully together where it was just he and I, nobody was really intervening. And everybody was very happy with the results. One was called Rasputin, which is actually one of my favorite scores. And that was with uh, uh, Alan Rickman and Ian McKellen, wonderful cast about Rasputin, you know, in the Russian historical situation. Um, And we did another one called Purgatory, which had Sam Shepard and really cool projects. And it was kind of like a Twilight Zone meets a Western uh, kind of thing. So I got to write uh, a kind of Western score with a little bit of uh, woo woo elements. (laughs) But anyway, the bottom line is, you know, on Mists of Avalon, the director who I was, you know, very connected with, uh, this was our third collaboration he had a feeling about writing this. And one of the things he said to me is the last thing I want for this thing about, you know, the women's point of view uh, of, you know, the King Arthur time. Right. And he said, the last thing I want is pretty Irish music. Right. (laughs) So we were doing, he said, these women are powerful. They're earthy. And we were doing this other whole thing. And then there was a point, uh, before I was about to record the orchestra, it had an element of, of some unique sounds. I created an orchestra. You know, the head of that studio saw uh, some tests or something, some demoed air scenes, and she freaked out. And she said, you know, one of the main reasons I did this project is that I love pretty Irish music. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, so I was gone. <laughs> I was gone and, you know, another good composer came on. I never heard the end result. The whole thing was very painful, but that was the last thing. And it was kind of the last straw. I I kind of stopped. It wasn't my bliss anymore. Yeah. Bottom line is, and the other part that eliminated the bliss was the use of uh, technology made it way easier for, for, for editors to do very complex quote temp tracks. Right. So, yeah. Um, right. Yeah. You're, I was going to say you, you you started out in an era where there was no such thing as a temp track. Being Sometimes played. they'd put a piece right? of sample music on. They just didn't have that many tracks. They were cutting the film on a moviola, and they had like room for two soundtracks, and those were usually uh, dialogue back and forth, like A and B dialogue, and maybe they'd okay. put an essential sound effect in. But once they got everything got digital um, or even on editing tables instead of moviolas, it became very easy and the editor would get very invested. It was very creative for the editor to pull pull his favorite cues from every favorite score that he ever had. And he'd have those scores available to him in his editing room and they, or her and they would yeah. put that score temporarily in. And I begged and was successful for many years, even when that existed in saying 50% of what you're hiring me for is my imagination. At least 50%. At least, you know, yeah. There's execution yeah. and craft involved. 
but it's also imagining what the film should sound like musically. And once you show me the film with another piece of music, it's not a love affair. It's a triangle, a dysfunctional (sighs) musical Mm. triangle, because I'm thinking (laughs) about little bits of what I imagine versus, um, versus, you know, what you're saying, you, what the film needs. And then there's this other music that's now in my brain and my yeah. consciousness. And, and it's something that you like, you're telling me you like it. So now I'm an imitator. I'm making, I'm not making uh, a yeah. Paris original dress, beautiful fashion creation. I'm doing a knockoff, uh-huh. a knockoff as they call it. And that was never my strength. And number no. one, I didn't, it wasn't blissful. So I didn't like doing it, but even so I I needed to make a living. So I did my best. But once that became a regular part of the process, I think it affected my work and I wasn't doing quite that pure imagination that I was doing that everybody now in retrospect really appreciates. Oh, totally. I mean, it, 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 it makes so much sense that you, it's not it's it's filtered it's it's processed through and you don't get that like you said that pure imagination out of it um the last thing you want from an artist is in their moment of creation to have them second guessing totally yep totally for us that falls in the voice matching category where it's like hey just sound like this person you're like yeah well what am i bringing to the table really right right good good thing uh good thing um Neither of us sound like anybody. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> but I was going to say, you, you, were, you were talking about how you're starting to kind of fall out of, fall out of love, fall out of that bliss that, you're, that, you, that you had with, with film. And did surfing come first before you got into making your musical? Yeah. Um, well, okay. Let's backtrack. True Lies, which my date thing is... I think I was working on that in 95. Maybe it was released in 96, right around that time. Yeah. Um, which yeah. was really, 94, really, actually. okay, really a fun project. It was stressful as always. Um, but, you know, it was like, it was a dream for me because I got to do some of my very, invent you know more inventive like you know wow there's infinite possibilities what's the sound for this but i also got to work with with large orchestra and wonderful shirley walker who who helped with the with the orchestration and was the conductor for me because i'm just not trained to be the best person for that role so so she she was very respectful always when she conducted for me of going for what I was going for. She was one of those few people that could do that role and not, you know, listen to the orchestrations, which I would mock up with my sounds and then sit with me and we would translate those sounds to orchestra. Anyway, that was a lot of fun. And it felt like a peak to me. Um, It felt like, Mm. wow, this is my dream. You know, um, there were influences in that score of music that I always loved, like the dance music from West Side Story, you know, or things that had nothing to do with synthesizers or any of that whole world. Just just got to express some of my musical soul and have fun. The movie wasn't all dark, you know. Yeah. Um, 
So that felt like a peak. And there was a little light that went off in my head saying, okay, dude, you did it. You know, you're not just the synth guy. So I had done many orchestra scores, but this was on a big uh, palette, you know, and before it came out, we really thought it would be this huge hit. There was just a, a whole vibe about it. It was, it did very well, but it happened to come out. And this is Hollywood when Forrest Gump came out and Forrest Gump yep. tickled the imagination of the audience and a little bit overshadowed, more than a little bit, overshadowed true lies a bit. Yeah, but anyway, time. as an artist, I said, okay, you here, you got to put it all together. And, and it, and it was fun. And it was just so amazing to, to hear it being performed by all these musicians instead of me playing most of the notes, you know? Anyway, bottom line is something went off in my head and it's, and I, I felt like I was done. Like something in my artistic soul said, you're done. You've been going towards this point. Not that the movie is perfect or the score is perfect, but it was a full expression of my musical imagination as a film scorer. That was your third time around with, with James Cameron, right? Yes. And yes. obviously you have a great relationship with him. Did you, did you feel that same freedom and, 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 uh, that you had back in 84 when you did Terminator? Absolutely, because Jim knew we had a way of working. He may have had some temp track stuff, but he didn't come uh, some temp track on some of the sequences, but he came to me. I had the script early. He was still shooting, so I hadn't really even seen very much of it. But he said to me, Brad, from the first four bars of this thing, it's you it's me, it's Arnold. The most important thing is that people know this is not a Terminator film and this is for fun. So yeah. that opening sequence, I, what I did was I, I did a suite. I did a suite of, of my vision for True Lies. I mocked up orchestra, you know, uh, with, you know, in my studio. And when I was ready with it, it, took me a few days, you know, I had Jim come in and I played him the suite. Now that's the crucial moment because if my first inclination, my first imagination of a score uh, connects with the director, you know that the process is, for the most part, gonna flow really nicely. times that I've done that kind of presentation with somebody and there was doubt or or it just didn't really connect with them um then things get a little dicier and there is second guessing and there is like well I want it more this way take it to the left go up this way you know so that suite just really connected with him. He really got it because he was afraid. I have to tell you, he was concerned about hiring me because he had a little bit of blinders on and I was his Terminator guy. And actually what I think opened his mind a little bit was he told me before we met that he had screened Striking Distance. 
and that was orchestra, a lot of orchestra as well. opened his mind a little bit more towards me not just being his synth guy, you know, um, dystopian synth guy. <laughs> okay, so he, he took... Isn't that crazy? That's crazy. Yeah, it, it is. I mean, he, he took he took striking distance. He looked at it from the perspective that I think fans of film look at movies and go, you know, what is this? What is it about this thing that I really like specifically? And uh, I, I'm glad... I mean, I'm sure you are too, and we all are. I'm glad he hired you for the for the gig. <laughs> yeah, and you know, it's interesting because there are some directors that have a relationship. You think of Spielberg and John Williams as a classic yeah. one, and I know Hans Zimmer is connected that way. Where they're just, I know you can do whatever I need. Let's do it. You know. Yeah. But Jim, and and you really like, you know, we had a whole discussion. I had a whole meeting with him about Titanic, and. I think what happened there, um, because I heard later, you know, the, the feedback was the meeting went very well and it felt very constructive. But one of the key things he said is, you know, we've been kind of lucky, quote, lucky so far, where you've just hit the nail on the head right out of the, out of the gate, you know. And I think he had been temping it quite a lot and was really in love with some of this um, Oh my gosh, I'm forgetting her name right now. Uh, Enya. Celine Dion. He'd been, he'd been, no, <laughs> he'd been, no, he, Celine Dion was, Dion was a farthest thing from his mind. He never even pictured a song on it, which is another whole story. Yeah. I but, bet. but he'd yeah. been writing it and listening to Enya. And oh, yeah. I think he, yeah. I think he had an intuition. He was a very intuitive guy. And you got to give him credit. His decisions are usually really amazing. Yeah. Uh, I even had doubts about his casting on Titanic, you know, and of course it totally worked uh, on so many levels. But I think he, he said something that he was concerned that if we didn't hit it right out of the gate, he wasn't sure what would happen. And I said, well, mm. what would happen is I would keep working until I got what you wanted. And yeah. that was anyway, it was an interesting thing. So with, with Jim, he doesn't necessarily work that way where he just would hire this, you know, obviously he hired me on three films. He hired Mr. Horner on a number of films. He had yeah. one film with Alan Silvestri. You know, he was not sticking to the same person all the time. So I really did have to convince him on True Lies that I could handle it. And in, really, until he heard that suite, even though we had a contract, because I didn't audition for movies at that point, you know, it was like you hired me and then I'd show you what was on my mind. You know, yeah. he knew that he could get out of it if he needed to, you know? So until he heard that suite, I wasn't truly, truly hired in a sense. You know, I think that's when he was like, okay, now we're doing it, you know? Well, I was going to say too, you, I mean, we could, we could, we could talk for another hour about certain movies in your career, like for example, and I just want to throw a few out that we again, personally love like 
you know, um, True Believer, I think is is a great score, and and glad, like I said earlier, Gladiator, and um, and, and it, I think Blank is a very underrated movie with a fantastic score. And thank you. Uh, and yeah, you're welcome. And and obviously, Serpent in the Rainbow is actually one of my favorite Wes Craven films. Um, and and just the list goes on. I, I just want you to know how much we appreciate your total body of work. It's not just specifically Terminator, and obviously we are and True Lies, um, and Fright Night, but it's it's the whole thing. And I but I do want to get into your musical that you're working on, and I know you talked about it a little bit in the beginning, but before we do that, you had like you had said about surfing. Um, you know, we've had it's funny, Dustin and, and I. Um, in a in a in an odd way have had have had John Philbin on from the movie North Shore, Matt Adler on from the movie North Shore, and then we always get to talking about surfing for some reason, and and neither yeah. of us are real surfers, which is funny. Um, but like surfing, there there's a, there's a zenness about if that's even a real word, which is not. Um, there's there's talk talk about your love can you talk about your love of surfing like what is it that brought you to that so so how long is this show going to be <laughs> i know right sorry well the other thing is you know i i can i can make the longest answer to the simplest question so don't don't worry <laughs> about interrupting me especially when i you know in my coffee state anyway noted <laughs> yes there is a, there is a clear answer to that which is towards the end of my scoring career, as I mentioned, things were getting, you know, I was in the higher uh, atmosphere as far as bigger studio made by committee type films. And there was a lot of that second guessing and the temp tracking and me coming up with something that I didn't feel totally sure about sometimes because I was kind of scrambling to, to figure out Well, they, you know, in some cases, the director's telling me one thing. Well, sort of like what happened on Miss of Avalon, but on some other projects, the director's telling me one thing, the studio's calling me. So not only is there a temp track, but the studio's calling me behind the scenes, which is really not kosher, and saying, we really hate his temp track. Don't do that. Wow. <laughs> Where do you go? No, you know? exactly. <laughs> so, so I learned, I, 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 when I got in the water, I was coming off of that. It wasn't mm -hmm. while I was, it was kind of like right after my Mist of Avalon, basically, soon after that. And frankly, I was still open. I was still considering myself a film composer, but the offers weren't coming and the offers that were coming were not great. And, you know, it was just a whole, a whole confluence of things. So that whole energy of, using my creative heart in a way that didn't feel connected totally and blissful. It felt a little scared, like, Oh my God, I, you know, they're liking this, but it's not what I'm hearing and what can I do? And all that kind of feeling. So the thing about surfing, going back to the Zen thing is, yeah. so I would write a piece of music and sometimes I'd have to wait two or three days before anybody would hear it. I really wanted them not to hear it. Uh, without me there, because I could read their even their body language. So there was like this subconscious thing in sitting with a, with filmmakers when you present something and knowing what's working and if it's not working, getting an idea. It, it's just something that was important to me. So sometimes there was a wait, and then I'm sitting, and they're often sitting behind me in my studio, 
So I'm just kind of feeling their vibe through my back. I don't want to look at them. I want them to just close their eyes and listen, you know, and, uh, that's, that's horrible time. That's, that's a, it's, it's like, Oh my God, you know, am I, is my, my attempt going to be, uh, accepted or not or rejected or are things going to get now get screwy? Cause if they don't like the first thing, it just goes downhill because there's a loss of confidence on both sides that happens. So, um, surfing is really simple. When you paddle for a wave, you either get it or you don't. Or you get it and you're off balance and you wipe out, you know? And that yeah. immediate feedback in dealing with, first of all, being out in nature after, you know, like I think literally from my late teens till that point, I had spent the majority of my waking hours in studios without a lot of fresh air and whatever and now i'm out paddling around and there's dolphins going by me and you know all this stuff and uh but that immediate feedback was a healing thing for my soul because i'd started to lose confidence in my you know i had bat a thousand for so many years or 900 or whatever you know where where what my imagination would tell me was true for the people, other people that needed to, to, to respond to it. And that started to happen less. And there were too many other factors. So being out in nature and dealing with fear, it's like paddling out and going, oh my God, these waves are way over my head, you know, and just like paddling through anyway and making the wave uh, or wiping out or realizing that as I paddled, there's this moment if the wave's a little bigger and scarier than you're used to where you, yeah. you choke, where you hesitate and there's no place for that. That's when you don't get the wave or you've kind of like hedged your bet and you get it, but mm. it's not with the kind of forward movement that will actually get you through it. So that's when you have a problem <laughs> and then you're, you're underwater with your heads, hands covering your head, trying to hope that you're I, I'm a longboarder, that your huge board doesn't hit you in the head or cut you <laughs> yeah, open. Right. You know, I mean, I've, I've had broken noses and, you know, things like that, but anyway, so yeah, that's the connection as an artist. I needed to get back to a place where I could have immediate feedback. Mm. And that actually did propel me to saying, I want to get back to knowing who I am as an artist where I'm not dependent on someone else's judgment. It's such a cliche, but it's a very typical spiritual thing, which is if you base your life on other people's approval, it's a mess. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where I had gotten, you know, so the surfing helped propel me and strengthen me to trust. Uh, you know, I came from a completely non-athletic family so it was quite revolutionary not revolutionary for me to be an artist because that was my family but to be an athlete to go out and challenge waves in this crazy sport was something totally new for my dna and i needed that and it refreshed me but it refreshed you enough to discover full circle right well you know i was what i was saying just to back up a little bit um at that time after True Lies, when I when that little voice inside me said, you're done. Yeah. And I didn't want to accept that because I had no idea how I would make a living. So I pushed that voice away. But the one place that I, the one way that I um, honored that inner mess, 
voltage was I started to create my own projects back in, hmm. in 94, 95. Okay. I wrote uh, a screenplay and the complete score, all original stuff for an animated musical. Um, and it was before the whole Afghanistan thing, but it was called Kalendar. It was this land that had to do with time and calendars, which is funny because then it's <laughs> later it started to sound like a Kandahar, you know. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I actually, you know, given that I was a known factor in the industry, I got that up to the heads of a couple of studios. And the music head, Gary Lamell of Warner Brothers at the time, was it Columbia? I don't know, I'm confused. But anyway, he was excited with it, took me to the animation. It, it never got made, but that was the beginning of that journey. And, and when I picked up surfing is when I really kind of let go of going back to that very kind of unclear way of scoring films that had come into my life uh, and wasn't at all blissful anymore. Um, so that's, uh, you know, around that time, I started to create some other things. Uh, Full Circle uh, was the third or fourth thing that I'd created. And that's good because I had developed some chops, you know. Yeah, um, totally. So I started, so it was really uh, 10 years after, maybe seven years after starting to surf that I, that I had the original inkling of an idea for Full Circle. And there were certain elements in it that I thought, it was back to my original passion, which was looking at the world and instead of being this rock star guy, but being this creator who's creating characters and stories and songs that reflect my vision of the world as an artist. So that was what was behind the creation of Full Circle. Well, maybe the idea that, you know, the rock star is it's better to burn out than fade away. Um, <laughs> that might be all good for, for uh, you know, Jim Morrison or, you know, Dave Lee Roth hasn't done so well in the past 10 years or so, but, um, <laughs> but, but for you to kind of, I'm not going to say reinvent, but for you to elevate and, and rediscover, uh, your bliss, your, your, your happiness, your passion through your musical is very inspiring. And, this I, we both Dustin and I were able to listen to a few tracks as well off it. Um, can you kind of describe how would you describe Full Circle to to listeners? Um, it's a tough one to do, but uh, it's my job, <laughs> so I'll try to do it. Well, there's two main elements. The one of the main inspirations of Full Circle was this world and the realization that many of us, most of us, including myself had uh, with all the stimulation that comes at us and all the information and the news and the horror and everything that's going on in every corner of the world, including, you know, like living in a city and, and having to step over homeless people to get to your appointment on time. So you have to put these filters up. Mm -hmm. I was concerned in a way that that had gotten so extreme. I wondered what was going to become of us kind of like what I mentioned in talking about artificial intelligence and humanity. So I created a character. Uh, um, her name is Sarah. And someone pointed out like Sarah Connor. I never <laughs> thought of that connection, but it was more based on this girl that I knew as a teenager. But um, anyway, I said, what would to myself, what would happen if you had this person, not necessarily autistic or anything on that spectrum, as much as the, that 
she just doesn't have that filter that we're able and to put on ourselves. And once you have those shields and filters, it's hard to get them off. And sometimes something that really needs your attention doesn't get it as a human. For instance, being a bystander or walking by something terrible that's happening to someone. So anyway, that that was the key. I wrote a character uh, who was gotten to a point in her level of empathy and sensitivity where she literally couldn't leave her apartment. It was too painful. Everybody's thoughts, feelings, and pain literally came into her body Mm. as a physical sensation. So that's Sarah. She's the main character. And then through other imaginations, um, my grandfather, some of his experiences, she had an estranged grand, she has an estranged grandfather who shows up on the scene. She doesn't know why she's never met him. It's a big mystery and, and, and secret in her in her uh, family and he shows up and has a stroke and they have to take care Mm. of him she and her mom and dad and all these family dynamics uh, show up and she has a very special relationship with her grandfather with her sensitivity and musically what was interesting to me is that he could not speak but with her incredible almost psychic not almost psychic empathy she literally hears his thoughts as singing so he is a character sings the entire show and only she can hear him mm. oh wow and their cool. interaction and he has a mystery and it's time sensitive and it's the reason he showed up in her life because there's a mystery in the family and they need to figure, they become a team and there's this kind of detective, there's this whole mystery thing with a, a ticking clock and they have to figure out because he has no memory of his past life uh, bef- in his years before he arrived in the United States at the age of 16. Something terrible happened and he's blocked it out and it's affected his whole life, which affected his his son's whole life, which now is affecting her whole life. So it's about generational trauma as well. And there's also humor and romance and all kinds of other stuff. Well, it's life, you know, and, and, and it's, it's interesting because you said earlier in the show how when you were a kid, you want to be this, this rock star and this activist and change the world. Activism is so much different now than it was 30, 40 years ago. Um, and I think, you know, I, I, was an, I was an educator for young children for many years and um, really Kudos for that, by the way. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, you know, I was really passionate about encouraging. Uh, I met, I met short, short little long story. <laughs> I met the Dalai Lama at a conference um, 20 years ago. And wow. the conference was on empathy, teaching, teaching empathy to kids. And uh, the whole, the whole kind of theme of the the conference was that Empathy can start from the from the moment a child is born. If we can teach a child to become the next Jimi Hendrix, we can teach a child to become the next Dalai Lama, um, and and so essentially. And so I took that idea with kids and said, you know what? I don't care if a kid is five or if a kid is sixteen. Their level of empathy, they can have a a strong level of empathy at their level. And so I did a lot of work with my kindergartners um, in in kind of cultivating that social emotional uh, justice for, for their age, you know, and what I love, what you said, what, what I'm, what I love hearing in, in full circle is that you've created 
um, a musical that is speaking to many levels and is also opening up people's minds that you don't have to necessarily go and and do one specific thing to get a strong message across. There are many avenues to get a message of of, of hope, of love, of of empathy, uh, of you know a journey. Um, and I just I love your your avenue is through your music, and I just think it's a beautiful thing. Um, you know, hats off to you for creating this this experience. Well, yeah. thank you. And 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 you know the selfish. You know, if a tree falls in the forest, you know the old thing, right? You know, yeah, yeah, years totally. of, you know. Well, it's that way. I've never heard that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's that way as an artist, right? I realized that I have created, as I said, like, I think four complete works. And maybe on my show, Borrowed Time, I noticed that there are some scenes on YouTube and some people over the years. I put it out, I think, in 2015. You know, there's been a fair amount of views on that stuff. But the bottom line is, like on Full Circle, it, it's a big work with a lot of levels. And I took a lot. I bit off a lot because it was my vision. So I actually wrote. I didn't have a collaborator. It's all, you know, it's my my script. I wrote the dialogue. I wrote the lyrics. I wrote the music. And it took a while and rewriting and rewriting. And it's certainly not perfect. But I... I I'm taking the leap and thinking it's perf it's good enough. And what I'm loving that I'm hearing from people are things like, gosh, I, you, just the thought of sitting through an hour and a half of something that's just audio and there's nothing to look at was really, uh, really kind of kept me away from it. But I finally sat down and I turned off the lights and put on my headphones and listened to Full Circle. And I was so drawn in and so impacted and it was heart opening and funny and deep and poignant that that my that's what I want. You know, as an artist, if I create something and nobody experiences it, yeah, the process is valid anyway. I really believe that. And it's probably something the Dalai Lama would agree with if you create beauty it, it almost doesn't matter because just in creating beauty you're putting something out right into yep, the universe right. but on a more right. selfish egotistical way i wanted people to experience it and i want people to experience it which is really why i'm here today and i hope people <laughs> i really hope people will go and and you know and check it out we started out uh having it on soundcloud and there was some people had some confusion or they didn't have soundcloud in the download and uh more recently uh it is on youtube full circle acts one and two is you know brad fidel full circle acts one and two is on youtube um and you can uh, listen to it straight through you can listen to portions and stop it and go back it's a little simpler i'm hoping you know because it is a theater piece. I'm hoping that people will listen to act one, you know, take a bathroom break, go have something to eat, maybe come back and listen to <laughs> act two, because the flow of it is part of the creation of it. But, okay. you know, I know in a real world, that's, there aren't many people that are going to do that, but I, I'm, I'm still holding my optimism. I mean, you don't know our audience, hope. Brad, everybody will, will do that. Well, good. Well, I'm really, yeah. that yeah. that's what I'm hoping. And it's just a gift, you know, it's all free. And I just, I just, as an artist, awesome. um, so appreciate and honor. It took me a while to, you know, I, I, I appreciate people's appreciation of my past work. I really well, what, come to peace with that. 
And and if you think of me as the Terminator composer, that's perfectly fine. I, I used to resist that and say, well, no, because I did this. I did. You know, you guys obviously get that. You, yeah, you know, yeah. you know the work. But this is just another part. Uh, so if, if you like the musical soul and heart that you've heard behind these films, uh, this is I'm taking full responsibility there. I was a collaborator. This is me undiluted so you know and i imagine i'll write very different projects as well this is a particular project but it it is my expression undiluted i take full responsibility if you hate it that's my problem if you love it that's my problem too (laughs) (laughs) well uh, if you hate it write to james cameron and tell him (laughs) how did you let this guy go out and do this shit you know (laughs) I had a realization I hadn't thought of before, which is there is a little trailer, an audio trailer, and it, it's, I guess it's on SoundCloud. But, you know, if you want a little taste, you can invest three minutes and see if it's intriguing to you. You know, to be fair, it's kind of a big, a big commitment, you know, an hour and a half. But if you listen to the trailer like you would watch a movie trailer, it'll give you some idea of where, where it's at. Well, and I'll tell you, too, to echo what Dustin said earlier, uh, you, you don't you don't know our audience. It, it I think there is a resurgence now in people listening to the quality. Um, you know, we we have a pretty strong following. Dare I say, the best following for any '80s related podcast on the planet. Um, but we, but there's That's this, cool. yeah. And 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 through audiobooks, which I think are so popular now, um, and podcasts, which are obviously huge, there is this new resurgence in just listening to something uh i one of my favorite things growing up as a kid was listening to the war of the worlds by orson wells or listening to old radio i had radio well, you programs go. you know it, it, war, yeah. war of the worlds or listening to um you know i had sherlock holmes on audio cassette and and all these things back in the day and uh and, and story books you know yeah. and so and the, and the cool yeah, thing about this and in fact there's a new uh, thought that just came out uh, with me, me and my my extended little team, which is that we want to really um, make sure that the 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 sightless or however is the proper way. I excuse me if I don't say, but blind people, um, this is a natural because there aren't many musicals. There's there's uh, cast albums, right? But yes, there aren't many yeah. musical out musicals out there where you actually have narrative description as well as the dialogue and the, and the singing. So it's, it's an, you know, and I love the idea that people can have their own imagination. Like somebody who, who experienced it said they saw it as animation. I was like, I had never even awesome. considered mm-hmm. that. And I thought, wow, a certain kind of really artful, cool narration could, could definitely do this because there's a somewhat at times surreal, magical element to the story um, in, in reliving dreams and reliving the past, uh, Anyway, well, to to come full circle, if you will, uh, here here you are, uh, groundbreaking in 1984 with the Terminator, and coming back around with something that you know maybe will propel. Fans are crazy, right? I'm sure you get crazy fan stories all the time. Who knows? Someone might hear this and go, "I'm such a huge fan of Brad Fidel's work. I'm going to animate this and make it into." You know, who knows? It could happen. You never know. Well, you putting it out there. You just yeah, you just put uh, that's okay. So my goal, because I was asked to clarify my goal by my my 
social media guru. And I said, you know, <laughs> I'd like a certain number of people to experience this. And it was, you know, a pretty big number. And she said, great. I said, but a sub goal is that there might be someone out there, and whether it's a theater producer, director, an animator, a filmmaker, someone might be moved by this enough and and have a vision of how to bring it to life in other medium, whether it's live theater or animation or film. And they won't ever get exposed to it unless I do something like this right now. So yeah, that's that's kind of a sub goal of mine, which is is to to possibly touch someone who has the passion and the genius to do to take this to another level because I believe I've taken it as far as I can at this point by myself. Well, we will take it to the next level with our show. Cool. <laughs> I love it. Hey, by the way, Fright Fright Night is was actually is I listened back to it a few years ago. I don't usually listen to this stuff, but they were doing a release and man, that was creatively fun. Uh, it's a whole story about how I created that score because it was a very different way of working and improvising uh live onto tape. Um but yeah, that was a that was a a, a peak experience for me. Oh, that's awesome. Maybe if uh, if we have you back on down the road, that would be a great story to tell. Because, yeah, I'm happy to. Uh, There's a Tom, book. Tom, Somebody's oh, doing a ahead. book, and I had to answer a whole bunch of questions. I don't know what's up with that. I don't know if you know. Oh, apparently, apparently there's a podcast called Fright Night Minute, and they it, it, these guys break down every single minute of the movie Fright Night. Oh, now that's scary. Uh, that's scary to me. That's kind of bonkers. But but I will say, because uh, I, like I said, It's called Podcasting After Dark, by the way. <laughs> no that's my other podcast uh yeah i had talked to tom holland and he said that he had just such a fun he has nothing but fond memories of that film and um and working on it so you know just wanted to put that out there yeah um, that was great we haven't been in touch for a while actually through this whole social media thing two people i've spoken to that i hadn't spoken to in so many years one was john oates back from my Nice. short stint of being you know yeah. playing keyboards for him and daryl and the other one was chris sarandon oh so nice just, just kind of texted me because of that thing i'm, I'm telling you to check out someone had yeah. shared the the little video of me playing uh come come to me uh but anyway yeah so that was cool well so that, yeah i'm I mean, looking that... at the clock i really actually uh yeah i gotta go <laughs> Yeah, well, I, Brad, it's perfect timing. Um, thank you, thank Brad. you so much for being on our show. Uh, thank you, guys. It's been an honor, pleasure, and uh, we'll we'll definitely be in touch and 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 check in with you down the road. Yeah, and I just want to thank you guys, uh, you know, for your wide range of understanding, uh, you know, my film work. So that's that's really rare to run into and very cool. So thank you. Well, it's an honor. Thanks. Our pleasure. Take care.
Oh, listen, I just wanted to say goodbye and remind you that the good guys always win, even in the 80s. All right, thanks so much for listening. We really appreciate it. Don't forget to subscribe and give us a four... Is it five-star rating? (laughs) Don't forget to subscribe and give us a five-star rating on iTunes. We really... Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. If you listen to us on Spotify, that's great, too. And you can find us on the internet. (laughs) Don't forget to check out our website at $2LateFee.com and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at $2LateFeePodcast. We'll see you next time. We did it. You're listening to the Geekscape Network.